Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I've never read any of the books in George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire. My name is Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And we have a special treat for you guys today. Uh, for the first time in A Cast of Kings history, we have someone who's actually involved in making the show. Some actual expertise for <laughs> Some once. actual expertise involved in making the show on the podcast. Joining us today... Um, Brian Cogman is a co-producer and writer of Game of Thrones. He's also uh, the writer of this week's episode, which I believe is called The Laws of Gods and Men. Is that correct? Yes, The, the Laws of Gods and Men. And you also wrote Oathkeeper from yes. uh, season four of Game of Thrones. Brian Cogman, welcome to A Cast of Kings. Thank How are you doing you. today, sir? I'm great. You, you way oversold the, the coolness of your guest. <laughs> I'm afraid, I'm afraid all your listeners are gonna be like, "Oh, I thought they got Dinklage or something." I think no, a bunch of people, a bunch of people guessed. Oh, like, oh my god, is it coming? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm so excited. Will do it. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I think I think you were confusing oversold with undersold, Brian. <laughs> oh no, 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 no! You were very kind. Uh, well, Brian, we really appreciate having you on the show. Now, sure. before before we get this show on the road today, uh, we should let people know that uh, we are going to spoil everything through this week's episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, which is through season four, episode six, uh, The Laws of Gods and Men. We will not spoil anything from future week's episode of Game of Thrones. That includes anything from the next time on preview. A lot of people are probably going to be wondering, are we going to be doing our normal recap episode? The answer to that question is yes. That will be separate than this episode, uh, and it will come later this week. So just enjoy so I don't, have to, I don't have to listen to you guys, you know. Rip <laughs> apart. As I'm sitting there. Tear this thing Wouldn't to shreds. Like, we have Brian Cogman here to listen to our, <laughs> to our critique <laughs> in real just time. just like the sound of you gently weeping in the background. Yeah, yeah. 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 That would be yeah. great. That'd You're going to be, be great. going, stupid Brian. They're right. Fooled <laughs> <laughs> again. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, no, we will, not, we will not subject you to our, uh, no, to our nitpicking of the episode. Um, well, Brian, uh, mm. it, it is such a pleasure to have you on, and especially after... Uh, an episode that had, you know, one of the most memorable scenes, not only one of the most memorable courtroom scenes, not only in Game of Thrones, but some people have said, like, this courtroom scene with Tyrion Lannister joins, like, the the greats, uh, you know, like uh, Jack Nicholson. Oh, wow. Well, and a that's few good men. Ridiculous, you know? but I'll take it. <laughs> yes, father, I'm guilty. Guilty. Is that what you want to hear? You admit you poisoned the king. No. Of that I'm innocent. I'm guilty of a far more monstrous crime. I'm guilty of being a dwarf. You are not on trial for being a dwarf. Oh, yes I am. I've been on trial for that my entire life. Have you nothing to say in your defense? Nothing but this. I did not do it. I did not kill Joffrey, but I wish that I had. Watching your vicious bastard die gave me more relief than a thousand lying whores. Funny you mention that because I, I love I love that genre. So this was this was probably the most fun I've had writing anything because I, I got to kind of live in live in a few good men and. Witness for the prosecution and judgment at Nuremberg and all the great courtroom dramas and in, in film history. So yeah, I was definitely trying to channel some of that as as I was adapting it. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, uh, I guess one question to to start with is like, um, 
how does the writing process work on Game of Thrones? Like, do you uh, do you guys sit down in the writers' room at the beginning of the season and map out like who gets which episode? Like, how did you get quote unquote assigned this episode, or did you know you wanted it and kind of advocated for yourself to get it? Uh, well, no, I was just assigned it. Um, we we map out the season together. I mean, we really start months and months and months ahead of time as we're shooting the previous season and we're in Belfast uh, sitting around set and trading ideas and trading emails. We're, we're sort of constantly writing the show in that regard. Um, and a long time ago, I broke all the books down kind of chapter by chapter and did some outlines and things of that nature to kind of lay the groundwork for, for what ended up being seasons three and four and, and beyond. But uh, we really lay out the season in terms of you know what happens in each episode, generally in January and February, once we're all back in, in Los Angeles. And uh, for season four, it was just me and David and Dan, and with the, with the help of Dave Hill, who was David and Dan's assistant, and is actually joining uh, the writing staff for season five. So um, we laid it all out on the board, and, and then from there, you, we write a very detailed uh, outline, and that outline... Uh, serves as the basis for the scripts. Um, and I just got lucky and they, they assigned me four and, four and six. Uh, I was delighted to, to be given, to be given the, all these scenes, but particularly the, the, the courtroom scene uh, for the reasons blo- we talked about. It still blows my mind a little bit because when we, um, we did a Breaking Bad podcast as well, interviewed some of the people behind that show. And, oh, cool. Uh, did you ever talk to Michelle? No, we didn't have a chance to speak with she's her. The best. But yeah, she's a great fan of her work on that show. And yeah. it's just interesting that like uh, a lot of these uh, like peop- the creatives get assigned episodes like kind of completely randomly and it just some of those episodes happen to be some of the best episodes ever in the history of television and it just seems like sometimes it happens a little bit by luck of the draw. Yeah, occasionally um, I think to myself like Oh, they probably didn't mean to give me this one because it's really good. <laughs> but I, but I you know, when I got the bathtub, Jamie bathtub scene in season right. three, do they really want? They really don't want to write this one. Okay. Um, I mean, a lot like, of times. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Joe. Oh no, I was just gonna say they're you know they were like, well, Ramsey and Theon are gonna be in bathtubs already. Obviously, we have to have the bathtub guy back. The bathtub guy. Right? Yeah. What's with me in bathtubs? <laughs> and then there was there's Salador San in the baths. I yeah. And then yeah, I, I don't even take all that many baths in life. I I, I don't. <laughs> I don't, there's some information. Maybe that's why. It's I mean, I shower. You, I keep clean. I just you use it. You use the show as a way of wish right? fulfillment, Brian. I right, right. Well, that's right. That's what we writers do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I. Uh, uh, what were we talking about before Bass? Oh, um, <laughs> sorry. No, no, don't, don't be. We were talking about like how you got these episodes by luck of the draw, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, I generally write episodes that happen more or less in, in the middle. I think the earliest episode I had was three in, in, in season two um, because the guys quite understandably want to start the season and end the season. So uh, uh, I sort of by default, I, I, I generally get assigned the, the middle episodes. But that's kind of fun because they, you know, they often contain some of the big turning points. And in the case of season one, uh, arguably the fourth episode is, is the one that kind of kicks the story off properly after about three episodes of just introducing everybody. So uh, yeah, I've I've been I've been really lucky. I've gotten to introduce a lot of of the major characters, and you know it's it's a uh, it's a great it's who's a great your, set of toys. Who's been your favorite to introduce? My favorite to introduce? Oh gosh, uh, it's probably a tie between Brienne and Sam. Nice. You know, I love so you know what a lot of people notice is your 
devotion to the source material. Mm. And so you have devotion for characters that maybe show watchers are having harder time falling in love with than book readers do, like Stannis or Sam. Mm. Are there any characters that you feel are particularly misunderstood in the show that that you feel like if they really knew them the way that you feel about them, show watchers would would love them? Oh, that's interesting. Um yeah, I think Stannis is a good example. I mean, I, I contrary to what a lot of people think, I love Stannis, but um, I love him for all of the reasons that some maybe don't connect with him. I, I, I think his his uh, his uh, what's the word? Uh, his his sort of strong resolve that that borders on a kind of you know uh, uh, sociopathic stubbornness. And <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I love. I also love writing for him because he's a man of few words. So that's, that's a big challenge. Um, you know, it, there are more verbose characters that you write, like Tyrion that you can just kind of go crazy with, but you have to really choose your words carefully when you're writing a character like Stannis. Uh, and I really enjoyed uh, in season three getting to sort of uh, a peek behind the curtain as it were in terms of exploring his home life since he's not a POV character in the books, he's seen almost entirely for the first few books through Davos's eyes. Um, so we had the chance to kind of uh, explore his relationships with his wife and his daughter. And then, of course, it's the show version of his wife, who's a little bit different from, from the Salise of the books. But uh, I really enjoyed introducing the, the, the Baratheon extended family in, in season three. Um, and, you know, his, his storyline is a little bit, more of a, it's a little bit slower of a burn than some of the others, uh, without giving anything away. Uh, but I, I don't worry, I'm not going to give anything away. But with but, puns, uh, <laughs> a, a little bit of a burn. A little bit of a burn. I caught huh? that. Look at that. <laughs> I wish I could say I did that on purpose. Um, but you know, this season is an example of that where you're you're not, you're not seeing him a whole lot because he's having to really kind of rebuild from the ground up, and we've made him we've made his situation maybe even a bit more dire in, than in the books in terms of his troop numbers and, and, and you know, the, the obstacle he, the obstacles he needs to, to, to face in order to, to get back in the game, as it were. Um, and so that was one reason that we, that we uh, conceived the Iron Bank scene and decided to bring uh, the institution of the Iron Bank and uh, Tycho Nestoris, the representative of the bank, earlier in the story than George does. Um, David, for you who has not read the book, uh, the Iron Bank doesn't really appear until I think book five. Yeah. Um, so in earnest, yeah. <clears throat> in earnest. So we, but we thought we it w- this was a good time to do that. And uh, well, you and- know the old saying, Brian. Um, <laughs> when if you see a Iron Bank mentioned in season one, <laughs> it must be shown by season four. I think. Is well, what in a funny way, that's Chekhov's <laughs> Iron Bank. I that's think is what of, they call that's, it. That's kind of what we were faced with with a few things in this season. And, you know, the the needs of a TV show are different from the needs of a book series, and Right, you can tease things out a lot longer in a book series than you really should in a television show, and uh, yeah, so that was that was kind of the thinking behind that. And then flipping it a little bit, you know, instead of having Tycho come to Dragonstone and treat with Stannis on her, his turf, uh, I think the, the dramatic stakes uh, in terms of the scene and for for what the actors want to play are upped substantially if 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 Stannis has to go hat in hand, if you will, you know, two Bravos. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And speaking of Breaking Bad, I mean, we based we based Tycho's kind of clipped mannerisms on on Gus Fring. <laughs> I love it. Mm. <laughs> the only thing that scene is, men- is missing is him, you know, asking if if he needs they need refills on their soft drinks. I mean, uh. <laughs> it's essentially that was a curious omission. 
Right? Um, it probably would have been a little odd. <laughs> so we, but that was the idea. That was the idea. It was sort of the Gus Fring of, uh, I mean, whenever we can steal from Breaking Bad, we will, including their directors. So um, It was an excellent scene with uh, uh, the Iron Bank and in- introducing that. And, and just the look of it, I thought was really... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Deb Riley is our new uh, production designer this season. And that was one of the first sets that uh, was wholly hers that she, you know, conceived for the for the series for the season and it was just astonishing i mean just a beautiful set um because you've been building up to it for years and years and it needs to look impressive Uh, yeah and it needs to look a little bit of another world as well right she really she really nailed and she nailed i'm sorry go ahead Oh, no, just, but still look like a bank, which it did. So. And it looks like a bank, yeah. yeah. And, and, well, and the table that is there purely for intimidation. There's nothing right. it. There's no function <laughs> right. for it other than to you know, be an awesome table that they, that they sit at and, and judge you from. So, um, yeah, and then the other amazing set while we're talking about Deb is the, the, uh, the, Marine, the Marine throne room, which right. is yeah. it's a set on our Belfast soundstage. And uh, just extraordinary. Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite sets you know, we've ever had on the show. Um, fantastic. And, and so that's another example of you guys bringing something in earlier with the Hisdar stuff. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about that at all? Or, or are you yeah, cast? No. no? Okay. <laughs> nah, I'm good. <laughs> let's, um, let's yeah, look. no. No, I was joking. I'd love to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't know if that was book spoilery or not. And you're being oh, serious. No. <clears throat> no. Uh, the, you know, Danny's actual ruling of Marine is generally dealt with in, in, in well, it's entirely dealt with in, in book five. I think her storyline in book three pretty much ends with her, with that scene we saw in, in episode five where she says, I'll, I'll stay here and be a queen. Exactly. Um, but again, when we're mapping out the season, it's less about the timeline of the books and more, you know, if we take Danny for an example, where do we want Danny to be emotionally? Plot-wise, thematically, geographically, you know, what, what in season four does, do we need to accomplish with her? And once that's determined, uh, what we need from the books to achieve that is, is, is how we go about adapting it. So uh, the marine material from marine, or even, you know, in the case of this scene, is essentially a new scene, but it's inspired by characters and themes and other episodes from book five that we sort of moved up, rejiggered, Massage changed up a little bit, uh, and, and you'll see a lot of that going forward. And we've been doing that pretty much the entire time. It's just uh, maybe a little more prevalent now as we're moving as we're moving forward. And uh, and Joe, you'll know this the 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 num- the, the the number of chapters per character varies a lot more as the books go on. Tyrion will have twelve chapters, and Danny will have maybe four. You know, Bran will have. Three. So it's a in some cases it was a necessity to move some stuff up because we you know had already burned through a lot of the story for some of the other characters. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. I want to return to uh the courtroom scene that closes off this episode uh just cuz I feel like it's kind of the the centerpiece of the episode and um you, you know the Game of Thrones sometimes we'll spend an extended period of time in one place or in one location when there's something really important there. Uh, and so I guess like one question is like when you were writing this or when this scene was being conceived, was it always conceived in the way that we see it? Um, that it would kind of play out in this extended way and you kind of see it through through Jamie's eyes in some ways almost when he's going to talk with Tywin uh, and yeah. negotiating with him. Um, just talk us through like the process of writing it and if there's any changes that happen along the way. 
Sure. Um, yeah, well, I think it was pretty much always conceived that the back half of whatever episode it appeared in, it would, would be, you know, a, a, a soul, you know, a, a little mini bottle episode, you know, a half hour bottle episode that'll just be the trial from beginning to end. That was, that was pretty much what we always wanted to do. Um, because uh, in the, I'm trying to remember if in the book, if it's one chapter or if it, I think it's, it's broken two. up a bit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's two, two chapters. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we decided to make it one sequence uh, with that little recess, which the recess is invented. That's not uh, Jamie coming forward and making that deal with Tywin is an invention of the series. It's not in the book. Um, but we wanted to we wanted to create a scenario where Tyrion might have a way out that he then actively rejects, right? Um, just to sort of up the stakes and 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 make you know make the decision even more rash, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better word. Um, and also, uh, you know, he's essentially committing suicide. I mean, because he, you know, he, he'd rather die in a trial by combat than give in to his father, you know, even, 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 to, even if giving in to his father saves his own life, he'd rather, you know, throw it all away. Um, so... Well, yeah. isn't he allowed to like elect a champion like in season one? Uh, that is that is a possibility, which may or may not be explored next week. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, yeah, Brian's a natural. I like it. <laughs> um, Skating the spoilers. But he, but he's not thinking that in the moment. I mean, I think in the moment it's you know this is the only way I'm getting. You know, basically, Westerosi law is you know you can call trial by combat in there and, and then everything else is just put aside and you've got your trial by combat and he knows that and he, and he plays that card. Um, so, uh, yeah. So we, so we always knew it would be in that last half of the episode and yeah, just, you know, it, we mapped out kind of the basic beats we knew we wanted to have in it. And that kind of structure of the trials going badly, Jamie intervenes, Jamie thinks he's made a deal and Shay comes and Tyrion, Blow, you know, blows the gasket. That structure was there, and then it just came back to me going back to the book and finding, you know, which nuggets are usable, which bits of dialogue of which there was quite a lot that I ended up using, um, but also invented stuff, uh, callbacks to scenes that were in the show but that weren't in the books. Um, and the main thing that David and Dan really wanted me to concentrate on was that most of the testimony be basically true, uh, and that it's just the context that's damning aside from two or three choice outright lies, uh, it's basically going to be, you know, Tyrion really, you know, uh, Tyrion's actions coming back to haunt him, which I think makes, makes it fun for the audience that has experienced the story, you know, along, along with him, hopefully. And is the reason why you wanted it to close out an episode just because it would have been weird to have that final scene, like, mid-episode? Oh, yeah, I mean, there was never any question. You know, Tyrion is... is Certainly, if not the protagonist, one of the main protagonists of the show. I think him, you know, his. Uh, that, yeah, I mean, there was no question that it would that it would close out an episode. Is, is that often like how uh, the conversation goes? That like you think to, you plan it out from like you know an episode wants to like end with this scene, or you want an episode <laughs> yeah, to so, end with this scene? Yeah, episode? sometimes. Yeah, yeah. There's certain kind of big moments in the in the saga that you just know are going to be closers and. Uh, you know, it varies. It varies from uh, story to story. I mean, the first thing we do is we map out an entire character's story first from beginning to end, and then we break it up by episode, and then we slot its position in the episode. And then when you're writing it, that could change, 
it, it doesn't usually the beginning and the middle. I'm sorry, the beginning and the ends generally always stay the same, but 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 not always. I mean, my the original draft and the shooting script of the episode, the episode started with the dragon, uh, and that on the Danny sequence was, right. was the first scene, and then uh, it was shifted, which I think I think wisely. As as great as that dragon sequence is, I think once the once that Bravos shot was complete, there there was no way that wasn't good. Right. Once you had the Titan in there. Uh, <laughs> like that, we're that starting was, with the Titan. And you know, I wrote I wrote that scene thinking, well, this'll get cut. Um mm, right. it's an effect shot that's gonna be really expensive and you don't necessarily need it. It'll maybe we'll just start <laughs> with the bank and and thank God it wasn't, and then it exceeded any you know, my wildest imagination, what they were able to come up with. I mean, I, I just, it blew my mind. And, and when you think about the fact that that ship is in a parking lot in, in Banbridge, Northern Ireland with a green screen around it. Um, you guys didn't build a Titan from scratch? What? I mean, I mean yes, we did. <laughs> my world is shattering. Did I say parking lot? I meant... The open uh, ocean. I meant open ocean with yeah. a huge set. Yeah. Um, you know, when you, I, yeah. So when you do an episode like this, which is such an interesting blend of wholly created scenes and then, you know, the courtroom scene, which, you know, as you say, you'll mind the best nuggets from the book. Which do you prefer, like creating a scene with Davos and Stannis, Stannis and just deciding what they're going to say or doing one of these combination scenes or I, I imagine both have their merits, but just sort of what are the yeah. differences for you? Yeah, they do. I mean, I mean, uh it's two different muscles that you're exercising. I think it's gotten easier for me as the years have gone on to, to work on the holy, the holy new scenes because I've been living with these characters for so long. And, and now you also have the actors who you've, you, you, you know how they are going to interpret a line as you're writing it. And that informs how you write it. Um, right. So, uh, you know, I, I find it equally fun and equally challenging. Probably a little scarier when it's a blank page and you don't have a chapter you can um, uh, reference. Uh, although, even in those holy, as they say, those invented scenes, while the while the plot mechanisms of the scenes might 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 be new, you're using the books as almost as much when and and they're, they're informing everything you're writing. You know, uh, while that banker scene doesn't appear per se, Davos's feelings about Stannis and his philosophy about Stannis and why he thinks he'd be the best ruler, you know, that's, that's from the books. It's just sort of repurposed in the dialogue. Same with the philosophy of the Iron Bank. Uh, you know, the scene with Marjorie and Olena from, from, from episode four never happens in the book, but it's, you know, the, the little bit where she talks about being engaged to a Targaryen, that's a little nugget that George sort of gives you as a throwaway that I just took and expanded for purposes of the scene. So... Uh, you know, the source material is always informing those, those new scenes, um, you know, but, but it's, it's, it's certainly a, it's certainly a challenge juggling those two things, but, but it's fun. I, I have a question, Brian. Yes. Uh, and this question is asked with no judgment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but when you write a scene uh, and there's, there's nudity in the scene, Yes. Is that something you write in at the script level, or is that something that's added in by, let's say, the director after the fact? Oh, <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's usually at the script level, um, as far as I know. I don't think anyone's ever just taken someone's clothes off in a scene that wasn't <laughs> where it wasn't required. So, I, uh, well, then I guess the question is like, uh, it seems like there's like nudity regularly on the show, 
And uh, I guess I'm curious, like, how you approach it um, um, as a writer. I'm kind of used to it now. I mean, it's not that hard to write. You just write that, you know, he's sitting in a bath with two naked prostitutes and there are some naked uh, customers in the background. I don't know. It's, it just seems <laughs> you sort of write what's truthful. I mean, when you're writing more grim sex scenes, like, say, the rapists at Craster's Keep, like, that's not fun. It's just sort of, you know, uh, in service to the truth of the subplot. Um, and you try to, you know, it, writing any of those scenes is, is, is meant to be a guide for the director and how he or she, you know, uh, stages it. But uh, I've gotten kind of used to writing sex scenes now. I, at first, I had no idea how. I just thought, well, how do you write that? How do you describe that? And that sounded like a romance novel. But then you ultimately just sound like a romance novel. <laughs> Thankfully, no one's reading them. You're just they're just watching it. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question at all. But it, it does a little bit. It does a little bit. It, re- it reminds me. It actually reminds me of a. Uh, I'm. Um, I work on a podcast with an actor named Stephen Tobolowski. I don't know if you're. Aware oh of yeah. Oh, you work in his podcast. I love that sh- podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and uh, he was talking about how having sex. Um, like if you're an actor and you need to have sex. Right. Uh, on screen, you know, <laughs> the w- one way to do it is pretending like you're getting your toenails clipped uh, <laughs> really, really carefully. Like, just be like, ooh, like, you know, like someone's like very, like, carefully trimming your toenails. Like, ooh, sensitive, you know, like. Um, That's amazing. That's exactly how I, what I think of when I'm writing one. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it, honestly, it, it all comes down to this. It's also, it's technical. I mean, and it, it's technical when we're shooting it. It's, it's. You know, it's there's nothing. It, it, it's it's there's a there's a crew there, and you're closing the set, and you're carefully mapping everything out to make sure everyone's comfortable. And you know, it's it's it's. I don't know. It's just it's just sort of part of the job now. I, I know that sounds strange because people <laughs> people have a real reaction to the sex on the show, right? Much more so than I don't know the violence. Uh, but yeah, what it, is up with that? But, but, but when you're writing, <laughs> When you're writing it, though, it's the same thing. It's just it's an element of the story. I, I, you know, I'm not as. I guess I'm kind of desensitized to it now. Maybe that's I don't know. Fair enough. Fair enough. But but that's you know I, I, that might have been a hedgy answer, but not at all. Not at all. <laughs> um, um, I have a couple more questions. But Joanna, did you have anything you wanted to ask? Um, I guess I will say. I mean, you might have already answered this by talking about Stannis, but my question would be. Um, other than Sir Pounce or Stannis, huh. is there a particular character you like writing for, dialogue-wise? Masterful I mean, Sir Pounce scene. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Sir Pounce. Uh, you know, I was uh, outraged when I heard he would not be coming back for the rest of the season. As were many. Well, yeah. you know, talk to the cat. That cat. <laughs> That's yeah. what you said. Oh, I was reading yeah. your Entertainment Weekly interview, and you were that like, cat "That cat was a nightmare." Yeah. Yeah. Natalie Dormer punched me in the arm. <laughs> like, I hate you. Why did you write in this cat? Oscar, uh, Oscar Isaac said the exact same thing about Inside Lewin Davis. Yeah, Shooting with that cat, he's like, I hated working with that cat. Oh, yeah, well, talk to Amelia sometime about doing breakfast activities on stage with a cat. I mean, cats aren't <laughs> meant to do this. That's all there is to it. Um, but, you know, who knows? We'll see. I can't make any promises about Sir Pounce, but uh, <laughs> I was happy to get him in. Um, you know, I, I love writing, uh, I love writing for, for Theon, for Alfie always have uh and his scenes you know are become increasingly and immensely challenging as he kind of sinks further and further into reek um 
and that sequence was a tricky sequence to, to script. It was a lot of story to have to pack it into a kind of absurdly short amount of time. And the absurdly short amount of time was sort of the point. Um, How oh, so? actually, Joe, I'll take, you- I'll take issue. She didn't run because she was scared of the dogs. The dogs were... <laughs> The dogs were representative of the fact that she was not going to get out of there alive unless she, you know, decided to leave. Um, just- oh, no. This is when I find out that Brian – well, I knew. I know you read my stuff sometimes. Um, well, no. And I also remembered you did – you guys did a good job of setting up how – what those dogs are trained to do, you know. Yeah. So. But it was, but it's more like – because in my mind, Ramsey's basically letting her go. She's, she's trapped down there. He's, he's, put, he's put Theon in a space, you know, only accessible by those tunnels where – She's, you know, even if she can fight her way out of there, she's not getting out of that castle once he lets her go because she, she profoundly misjudged the situation and, and Theon did not want to, you know, he, he just, she couldn't get him out of there in time. Right. And I think he wants, you know, Ramsey wants to do something worse than kill her. He wants to, you know, make an ironborn run. And she is faced with the choice. I can either die in this kennel, uh, for this thing that isn't even a Greyjoy anymore, or I can go be the heir to the Iron Islands. And right. she has to make that choice. And of course, has, you know, that's going to have huge, I mean, undoubtedly huge uh, emotional you know, uh, and psychological things for her to deal with because she finally, she finally let her guard down to go and save him. You know, I mean, this is, she, she left him for dead already in season two. Right. And she wasn't prepared to do that again, and, and, and it's, it's made things even worse. So anyway, she wasn't... I saw it a few places where it's like, she's scared of dogs. It's like, it's not that she's scared of the dogs. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, but anyway. Um, well, I'm glad we had this conversation before we did the review. I was anticipating <laughs> your review. <laughs> no, but look, it's, 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 a, it's a crazy sequence because it is, it's, it's, it's built up to be a crazy, res- amazing rescue mission. And then it, it, it goes south in a super fast amount of time, which... I remember when I was assigned the episode, I thought, wow, I've got that. Okay, that's, I've got, that's a lot to, to sort of process in a really fast amount of time. Right. Um, so that was, the, that was the challenge of it. I forget how we got on the subject. Oh, yeah, because uh, Alfie, I think, in that scene, I mean, he, he just continues to uh, humanize this character in a way that I, I, I didn't even think was possible when we were writing it. I mean, he, he's sort of surprised us from day one with, with uh, the kind of depth of his feeling as an actor. And uh, uh, I think he's one of the unsung heroes of the show in terms of uh, performance. Um, and then I love writing Jamie and Tyrion, and I thankfully got... And Cersei, I, I love writing the Lannisters, so I, I had a, a great time with this episode in particular because I got to write a forehander between them, which doesn't feature any dialogue. Yeah, when's the last time we had all four of them in the same room together? I don't know. Have we? I mean... Yeah, the wedding kind of, but I guess the wedding. But they've never had a scene where the four of them are sitting talking. I don't think. Yeah, right. Um, and and this scene is as close as you'll get to that because they really are sharing. If you look at the just the coverage of them and the looks they're all throwing each other, they're having kind of a four way scene with no dialogue that essentially is a reflection of their entire history together, um, with the courtroom theatrics kind of, you know painting over that um which, right. which a lot of fun was a lot of fun to explore and then when the tension becomes too unbearable you cut to oberin or you cut to like marjorie yes. and loris and you're like ah okay yeah. oberin, <laughs> that's so wonderful about pedro and, and oberin in general is is he's this great kind of wrench to throw into the goings-on right. um so much fun throwing him into a king into a small council scene 
and mixing, you know, and Mace as well. I think I mean Roger is just is just hilarious. I, I he he just kind of nailed that buffoon. Uh, another, so, that's another, what, so they were going for buffoonish. Yeah, yeah. He's not as buffoonish in the book, but I don't care. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, so here's a question: uh, Is like, is there anything that you have tried to achieve, but that you felt like, oh man, I wish I could have done that over again? Oh sure, but I, I won't tell you what it is. Okay, <laughs> that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Uh, always, I mean, you're always striving to do better. I mean, uh, always, and and it's very hard for me to watch the episodes because all I see are the what we wanted, you know, what the day was like that day, why we didn't get that shot, why you know, oh, they used that take, oh, you know, it's it's right. the first time. I almost have to kind of get through it the first time and then watch it again and kind of appreciate it then because I kind of all the surprises of what happened in the cut or the, or the, I don't know, the personal history I have with it can kind of fall away. And generally I'm able to do that. But, um, yeah, I mean, if we weren't constantly trying to improve and do better, then the show would be, wouldn't be any good, you know? Um, well, I guess like, so you've written a lot of material that isn't in the books, right? Is that, is that fair to say? Cause I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. You mean myself personally in my episodes? Yes. Is that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Probably more so this year than others, but, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess like, do you ever? Um, uh, there's this phenomenon out there of like people who've read the book but still watch the show, and I don't know if you've heard of this. Still but won't, that won't watch the show? No, that still watch the, that watch the show and they've oh. they've read the books. Yeah. Um, and I guess like, do you ever encounter any? I want to say like judgment from people who like are you're joking right really upset that you're deviating <laughs> and i guess like one you know I'd you leave i left twitter for two yeah, years yeah brian brian famously yeah. left twitter because of this right I, so I, I guess i wanted to ask you like how you deal with that well now i i've, I've just I've got a thicker skin i didn't two years ago which is why i left um i mean I, I i come from the theater i was i was an actor so uh i kind of i kind of crave feedback a little more than say david and dan who are great at kind of isolating themselves uh, I have a harder time with that. I, I just I think the actor in me wants to kind of engage with the audience to a point, but um, uh, I took it all very personally a few years ago. Um, and I don't know. One day I kind of woke up and just didn't. Now I kind of have fun with it, you know. And it still annoys me occasionally if someone you know uh, says it. If someone criticizes me just to be mean or insulting, it still kind of bugs. But I, I just sort of, I just sort of brush it off and. If it gets really disrespectful, I block them. Otherwise, I don't. Um, and occasionally, people have valid points, and it's not really professional for me to engage with them publicly about them. You know, I'm, I'm ultimately the show has to speak for itself, and right. I could have like an honest conversation about why a certain line was changed, but that's you know, it's not it's not appropriate for me to share what ultimately is David and Dan's vision and why they made decisions they made, or I made. You know what I mean? It's just. It's not appropriate, so I can't explain things if, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. So, but I really like engaging with the fan base, and we have a really dedicated and and and, and intelligent and and uh, passionate fan base. That's a huge a huge reason for the for the show's you know continued success. So, I, I certainly don't want to discount them, but but it's, yeah. it's just a matter of how you you know emotionally 
deal with that kind of thing. Right. But, you know, it can be it can be wearing on you sometimes. I mean, it's like if you walk down the street and someone just tells you what's wrong with you. It's sort of how you feel when someone well, – because my work is – Wait, that's not normal for people oh, to do that? <laughs> I didn't mean to touch it. Oh, no. Oh, no. My, work, my work is a part of me, so – it feels that way when someone, you know, just comes up and says, you know, that sucked. <laughs> like, oh. uh, but I'm, I'm, I feel like I've, I'm dealing with better now. We'll see. Talk to me in a few, in a few weeks. When you're in, a, you're in a sobbing heap on the ground. We'll, yeah, right, right. We'll exactly. check in with you again. Um, well, very cool. Joanna, I, I have one last, like, critically important question to ask. But, sure. Uh, I also have one last go, critically go ahead. important you go first. question to ask. You go first. <laughs> I'm good. I've got, I'm, I'm okay. Um, no, I just wanted to ask, I guess you had mentioned in that entertainment weekly sort of postmortem that you did that this was the first episode that we hadn't seen the Starks in. It is actually, I figured that out after I, I think after we'd shot it, I thought, wait a minute, there aren't any Starks or even a snow or even, or even a snow. Um, so how do you feel about, we talked a little bit about this last week, sort of how the show goes forward in this post Joffrey world, like without its main Mm. villain. And then also how the show goes forward, um, which we've been talking about ever since Ned Stark lost lost his head, but how the show goes forward without its main heroic core. And I mean, would you just encourage people to embrace the chaos or, oh, you know, I feel, yeah. like, I feel like people are just trying to find replacement villains and replacement heroes. And I'm just wondering which you, which approach you think is the most useful or people will get the most enjoyment out of. Oh, that's, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, you're right. I mean, I hadn't really thought about that, but, but yeah, I mean, with Ned, you lose the traditional anchor that the audience sort of clings to uh, and the hero. And then, and then an audience kind of clings to its villain too, and and and, and wow, that's great. Um, uh, yeah, I would I would I would say yeah, I would say uh, embrace the chaos is a great. It's actually great advice because that's what you're going to get. Um, is a lot of chaos, and and also it's kind of where the where the story gets messy in a really fun way. Um, the because it gets grayer and grayer, yeah. and uh, characters that were started off on traditional hero arcs embrace a lot of grayer, you know, uh, storylines. I think Danny's a great example. This, 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 uh, you know, she's now having to learn how to rule now that she's become a conqueror and is, fa- is facing an entirely different kind of phase in her, uh, in her story that is really exciting. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, I mean, while we certainly have plenty of villains, to to uh, fill the, the villain void that Joffrey left, there is something pretty powerful about him that that that, that continues to loom over the story long after he's gone. But but yeah, I think what attracts certainly attracts me to this material, and I think attracts most of our fans, uh, be they uh, genre fans or not, is is that nothing is clear cut. Um, I, you know, Jamie is a perfect example, and and. Um, even and for show version of Jamie is an even better example of uh, characters that have a very messy arc uh, and a very complicated arc. And, you know, I think Maisie, Maisie Williams said something in an interview earlier, which I thought was just, I mean, she's a genius in so many ways, but <laughs> there was, she's just, this kid is, is astonishing. But she said, uh, Arya doesn't exist to be your favorite character, which I thought was a fucking awesome thing to say. Yeah, because it's true. I mean, that's what I want to say about a lot of it. No, 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 no. This guy doesn't exist to be 
your favorite character. This is not the guy you're supposed to cheer because he's going on this clean redemptive arc. Like that's that's not the world we're playing in here, and and you know that. But sometimes we have to, you know, George really reminds you of that, and 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 that's what I love about this material. I think that's why that's what sets it apart from uh, the standard, you know, sword and sorcery stuff, and um, and 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 there's just a lot more of that coming up. I think it's it really. The, the story really plays with your expectations. I think in a, in a, in a great way, but not in a very comforting or uh, uh, expected way. Right. So, folks, if this was your like Sunday night comfort show, yeah, you I like mean, to cozy up to I mean, look, tea. Maybe yeah. it still will be. I don't know. I mean, it, it floats your boat. But but you know what I mean. It's it's just. Uh, no, no. I, I think the you know, blank doesn't exist to be your favorite character. I just I I want to put that on a t shirt. I just I loved her that she said that. Yeah. Um. I just I, I love her in general. She's she's genius. And I, I her and the hounds stuff this year is maybe my favorite thing of the season. You know, various things that various things that like uh, Joanna Robinson has brought up to me over the years have <laughs> have stuck with me. And one thing you just you brought up Jamie and kind of his arc. And there was one point about the end of uh, the Red Wedding where <laughs> Roose Bolton stabs Rob in the chest or whatever, mm-hmm. and he says the Lannisters send their regards. Or he, actually, he says that and then he stabs them. Right. Yes, and apparently in the book, the book it was Jamie Lannister. Jamie Lannister sends her regards. Well, so, I'll, I'll, I'll explain that. It was just it was confusing. It was confusing. Uh, we, you know, we even ha- we had it in there, and uh, as we were preparing the episode and people were reading the scripts, it became a big concern that it was confusing in the wrong way, and that too many people were going to think that Jamie orchestrated the whole thing, and. And it was it was uh, as opposed to just having known about the whole thing, right? Yeah, which she didn't either. So it's it was just it was. I mean, Jamie oh, okay. didn't know about the red wedding. I mean, he was out on the road with Brian. Um, that's so in a whole different genre. That's he was right. On a road comedy rom com. Yeah. So uh, I think it was just a matter of something that works well in the book. Um, in terms of clean storytelling for a TV show, it, it just it, it it was ultimately decided to to simplify that moment for that for that reason. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so the question I was going to ask uh, is, I was actually going to ask something that was completely inconsequential that I was going to say was important, but there's nothing we, inconsequential on this show. Since yeah. we have you, since we have you here, I guess we can. Except that fucking cat. The one thing exactly. The one thing we haven't talked about is uh, the Oberyn Varys dialogue scene in this. Oh episode, yeah, Prince right? Oberyn, Lord Varys, only Varys. I'm not actually a nobleman. No one is under obligation to call me Lord, and yet everyone does. You seem quite knowledgeable about the Unsullied. Did you spend much time in Essos? Five years. May I ask why? It is a big and beautiful world. Most of us live and die in the same corner where we were born and never get to see any of it. I don't want to be most of us. Most of us aren't princes. <laughs> you are from Essos. Where? Lise. I have an ear for accents. I've lost my accent entirely. I have an ear for that as well. So yeah. is that that was not in the books, was it? No, 
Yeah, so so talk about. Have, I don't think they ever have an exchange in the books. Talk about why you felt it was necessary to have this exchange in the first place, and kind of how you approached it. Uh, well, that came later in the writing process. It was actually added closer to when we were shooting, uh, and I think. Oh, I know why. It was we were we you know we we made we made a decision to sort of make to make the Westerosi characters uh, a little more aware of Danny's goings on than they are in the book. Uh, simply because, again, we're in season four of the show, and it feels like those worlds need to connect more uh, and and affect each other a little more for the purposes of the TV show. Right. So, um, uh, so when that was when it was decided to bring that element into the small council scene, uh, it just sort of sprung from there. The idea that uh, oh, we have the, you know we have a guy, an expat from Essos. We have a guy who's been to Essos. Both of them outsiders. Both of them wild cards. Both of them. With their motives, uh, certainly Varys's motives very ambiguous, and and while Oberyn's are Oberyn's you know, goal to avenge his family is very clear, but the means with which he's going to do that are not. So it was just one of those things where it seemed like, and we knew we had two phenomenal actors in Conleth and Pedro, so it just seemed like good good producing to put them together, uh, and it was an, it was a way to kind of uh, continue the tradition of the little finger Varys staring at the Iron Throne. Recurring right. scene. It was sort of a, a nod to that. Now that Littlefinger's gone, uh, th- here's a new sparring partner uh, for 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 Varys, and and uh, a kind of baptism into the King's Landing storyline between having him in the ca- uh, you know the small council scene, but also in, in in that scene. And you know those scenes are you know they were born in season one uh, by default because you've probably heard the story before, but our our episodes were running short now in season one because production. Production in Belfast in the first season was crazy, and we were hacking scenes as we were shooting them because we had to make our days. And then some of the cuts were coming through, and they were like you know thirty-five minute long episodes. So we wrote a lot of those amazing, I think, uh, two-handers that you saw in the first season that are like five-page dialogue scenes with two characters in a room because we had to fill the time and we had to use our existing sets. Um, but those what what rose from those scenes are some of the best scenes in the first season, and I think frankly one of the reasons the first season worked. Um, that is because, so, totally fascinating. Like, yeah, I would never have assumed that it was because of financial, or actually, I guess, I don't know what kind of necessity, but some well, kind of necessity. I mean, you know, you're, you're, first season we're figuring out how the, hell we're gonna, what, how the hell we're making the show, and there's a lot of trial and error. And, and you know, I'm not talking out of turn because David and Dan have spoken about this before, but yeah, that, you know, we, we our episodes were coming up really short. And so, uh, the, the Jamie Cersei scene is an example. The scene with Viserys and uh, Dorea in the tub is an example of that. The scene with um, Theon and Tyrion uh, in the Winterfell Courtyard. Um, Rakaro and Jorah. Uh, You're saying these are all scenes that didn't all exist? Of these, all of these were written as we were shooting season one. Wow. Wow. And uh, the scene with uh, Yorin and Benjen and Tyrion. I mean, this, the list goes on and on. Uh, and they're some of the best scenes in the first season. They're all character, and they all explore the characters, and they explore the backstory and the themes, and, and the they're history. not and the yeah. history, and they're a way of delving into that without using flashbacks and without using kind of kind of cheesier narrative devices. And they became kind of the soul of the show. I mean, you have those scenes, um, those kind of scenes now uh, throughout the series. Uh, now we make a point of just including them when we're breaking the series down. I'm so uh, glad that you mentioned that Viserys scene because I thought I had ranked all of my favorite bathtub scenes, but I forgot about Viserys. Uh, so that another another bathtub scene. Yeah. I actually didn't 
I didn't write that one. It did appear in my episode, but I didn't write it. David and Emily. Now might but, like shoot to like number two on my list because they've got all that great history and that. And how that. we got all the yeah. Well, we realized you know it's, again we were shooting the first season when we realized oh we haven't really we haven't really explored the history of the Targaryens and what this dragon imagery means and what what Viserys is really fighting for. Right. And that's the purpose of that scene. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's one of those great things about making a TV show. If we hadn't run short, those scenes wouldn't have existed, and I think the first season would have been a lot less because of it. Um, so anyway, that's a long way of saying the Ober and Varys scene is an example of that. It was like we have these two characters. There's stuff that they have to say as characters. There's stuff we as writers have to say about the world of the show that can be conveyed through these characters. Uh, let's let's, let's uh, have them bump into each other in the throne room and see what happens. And that's kind of what kind of how it works with those scenes you sort of just start writing them and see what they talk about <laughs> that was what it was with you know the Theon and Tyrion scene that I wrote in the first season is that sort of thing I just well okay they run into each other in the courtyard what are they going to say and you just start writing nice. that's uh, like that that's like that uh the the sculptor who says I just take a huge chunk of rock and I cut away everything that's not the sculpture kind of yeah I mean with those scenes that's that's sort of you know what happened I mean it's, it's not always the case in some cases there's a narrative function or a plot function that we need to kind of right, right. deal with but a lot of times you know it's just I mean those various little finger scenes are just the two of them you know riffing yeah riffing and what was born from those scenes was this kind of spy versus spy rivalry that is a little bit in the book but we amped up big time yeah <laughs> Which yeah. then did end up affecting the plot in a big way when we kind of expanded the King's Landing subplot in season three uh, and the Tyrell uh, Lannister marriage plot, which exists in the book, but is a lot more streamlined. And we mixed it up with Varys and Littlefinger being involved. Um, you know, that kind of thing just would never have happened if, if, if David and Dan hadn't dreamed up those, those, those Varys Littlefinger scenes for the first season. And they would never have dreamed those up if our episodes hadn't been run short. So. <laughs> You know. Can I can I ask you about a specific line from that Varys Oberyn scene sure. um, about Varys's accent, which I can't remember if this is in the book, but is it a reference to the fact that Conleth Hill doesn't sound like anyone any of her other characters from Essos to say like I yes, you know exactly. I lost my accent? Okay, exactly. He doesn't have a, he, he clearly doesn't have a <laughs> accent before an accent, right. <laughs> but he's able to hear his fake. Yeah, it was beautifully played. Oberon's like, oh, yeah, I have an ear for that as well. Okay. It's a bit of a Henry Higgins, you know, <laughs> yeah. where yeah. he's like, ah, you're, you've been to... You're uh, Hungarian. Yeah, yeah, you know, oh, so, yeah. Shropshire, uh, Nottingham, and India. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's a bit of a cheat, but it uh, got a laugh. It was good, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Brian Cogman, thank you so much for oh, taking thanks. the time to this speak with us. This really fun. This is great. These were great, uh, great questions. Where can people find you online, on Twitter, for example? Oh, I'm just, I'm just, uh, what am I? I don't know. Am I Brian Cog- B. Cogman? I'm on Twitter, you know. Brian <laughs> All right. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> find him there somehow. Type in my name on there. And, you know. um, and Brian Cogman is a co-producer of Game of Thrones. He's also the writer of several... Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Oh, oh. Sorry. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I was going to say he's also the writer of several episodes of Game of yes. Thrones, including this week's yes, season four, episode six. What were you going to say? Nothing. I oh, you, just didn't want to, you didn't want to take full credit. I thought you were saying the writer. No, I, don't worry. I'm um, very – I would never overestimate your contributions to the show, Brian. <laughs> you really shouldn't. You Dave really fact should. checks. I don't always <laughs> No, you really should. So. David and Dan are this – this is their baby. I just help them. <laughs> so. uh, well, thanks so much, Brian. really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a lot of fun.